we are in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 13, and we're going to be covering verses 1 through 23 today in, uh, in our time together. Um, before I get started, I, I just, so this is a, uh, what do I want to say? What I love about going, you know, just chapter by chapter and verse by verse is we just deal with what's there, right? We just deal with what's there. And I love giving an encouraging word. I love to encourage. And then sometimes the word is just a little bit more hard. It's more of a warning instead of an encouragement. And it just, it's funny, I started watching um, <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. It's three hours long. I don't remember. I saw Saving Private Ryan, uh, Private Ryan in 1998 when it was released. I happened to be in D.C. when it, when it happened. It was just one of the most moving experiences to see that movie while I was in the nation's capital. But even in watching that movie um, made me realize, you know, we're, we're in a battle. We're in a battle between good and evil, right? Um, God and Satan. That's, that's a real battle. And when I was starting to watch uh, Saving Private Ryan, I watched about half of it, you know, in a war, and we're in a war. Um, we always need an encouraging word when we're in battle, but we need to be prepared for battle, and, and we need to be warned as well. And so this is just one of those messages. It's just a, it's a warning that our Lord was gracious enough to give us. Because when we engage in battle, we need to be encouraged and we need to be warned about some of the complexities of the battle that we're in. Does that make sense? So let me open up with this. Billy Graham said this a few years back. He said, I love it. He says, there's an inscription in the dome of our nation's capital in D.C., which few people actually know about. And it says this, one God, one law, one element, and one far-off divine event toward which the whole creation moves. A visitor saw this inscription and asked the tour guide what it meant. He said, I think it refers to the second coming of Christ. When the dome of our capital was erected, some God-fearing official ordered that inscription to be etched in the dome of our seat of government, believing that its truth was vital to the concern of our nation. Amen? Love that. Let's read Mark 13, 1 through 23. Mark 13, 1 through 23. And then we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Mark 13, verses 1 through 23. As Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Do you know that some of those stones actually weighed more than a million pounds? If you can believe that. It was a huge complex. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, which is about two miles away, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew began questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Be on your guard, church, for they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged. Flogged is to be whipped 39 times. It's actually supposed to be 40, but the leaders reduced it to 39 in case they miscounted. 
because it was thought to be that if you went past 40, you would die. Paul was flogged five times in his ministry. Five times Paul was flogged. You will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Why? As a testimony to them. That's beautiful. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Amen. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. That's happening already today. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he, she, will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life, would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. What an encouraging scripture, huh? A little dark, isn't it? Serious stuff. Let's pray. God, we are thrilled to gather under the banner of your name. We are thrilled, Lord, to spend some time centering on your word that leads us and guides us into Christ's likeness. Lord, we give you permission to have your way with us this morning. And we praise you in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. So here's what we're going to do before we proceed. Um, Mark 13 is one of the most perplexing chapters in all of Scripture for readers and for interpreters alike. It is thought by many that this chapter um, is actually a collection of teachings by Jesus that Mark uh, puts together at this point in his Gospel, which appears evident as the content seems to bounce back and forth between the present and the future. For our purposes today, and because we have very limited time, we simply cannot tackle the, entire, uh, uh, the entirety or the complexities of this text. I would highly encourage you, and I think God's timing is perfect, to consider taking Bill Kahn's class, which starts in two weeks, on prophecy. And you're going to go over this discourse, I'm sure, Bill, in your class, Mark 13? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, we just don't have time to unpack this all. There's just too much there. Um, but I would encourage you, Bill's class, you guys start in two weeks, right? Yep. So our outline, if you will, is really more of a to-do list. Our outline is more of a to-do list. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to discuss some particulars about the text because I think it's important. And then we're going to discuss some principles, some things that we can take away um, from Mark 13. Okay? Make sense? 
Mark's gospel. Some of this is a reminder. So we're gonna, I'm going to go back to some things that I shared with you back when we started the book of Mark in January. So some of this might be review. It's only a couple minutes worth of review. But just to kind of give the big picture, if you will, kind of a, a macro look at our context today. Mark's gospel is a gospel of action with a special emphasis on the power of Jesus, which shows his deity, that he is God, by the miracles that he performs throughout the book of Mark. And we've worked our way through most of it. In today's text, the action, if you will, touches on future action. Mark's audience, if you recall, is primarily Roman Gentile readers. Mark presents Jesus as the mighty Christ, which would resonate for a Roman listener, because they were all about power. And so Mark presents Jesus as the mighty Christ, as the Son of God, who exercises extraordinary authority to overcome the forces of Satan, the forces of sin, and the forces of disease, if you will. But this powerful Messiah has not come to conquer Roman legions. That was a mistake that many people made, thinking that Christ was going to come as a military conqueror and military ruler. But he doesn't come that way. He came to suffer and die. He came to suffer and die as the servant of the Lord and to pay the ransom for our sins as we know. The theme verse, if you will, if there, was, if there was a theme verse for Mark, it might be Mark 10, verse 45, which says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Wow. Mark was written at a time when allegiance to Jesus could cost a person everything. Their family, their friends, their possessions, and life itself. In the context of growing opposition from Roman government and from society in general, Mark calls God's people to follow the example of Jesus who remained faithful to God no matter the cost to remain faithful to God no matter the cost. I don't know about you, but there are times I wonder, will I remain faithful to Jesus if the cost really got expensive? Gosh, I hope so. Some key themes, if you remember, we went over this in January. If you don't, that's fine. Some key themes are the gospel. That's one of the key themes of Mark, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark introduces his letter, if you turn to chapter 1, he introduces his letter that way. Right? Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark wrote his gospel, Jesus had been dead for, or had ascended, um, about 30 years prior, Mark wrote his gospel in around 65 or 66 A.D. And so he's telling about the gospel. What does gospel mean? Good news. So Mark's saying, hey, let me tell you about the good news of this Christ who came and died for us and rose again. The, another theme is the kingdom of God. The content of this gospel is the kingdom of God or the reign of God. Look at, uh, Jesus announces, let me say this, Jesus announces that God's end-time provision or end-time salvation, His sovereign reign is arriving through the words and the deeds of Jesus. Look at Mark 1, 14 and 15. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Check this out. After John had been taken into custody, John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee preaching what? What does it say? Preaching the gospel of what? The gospel of God. In verse 1, Mark says, I'm giving you the gospel of Jesus. But Jesus, that gospel hasn't even started yet. 
He hasn't even begun his public ministry. He hasn't died. He hasn't been resurrected. He hasn't risen again. So Jesus is preaching the gospel of God. Well, there's a gospel of Jesus and a gospel of God? Yes. And the gospel of God begins in Genesis 1-1 when he created us to rule with him and to have fellowship with him and to have authority with him. And so this is just a continuation of God's gospel. Jesus came to, not to preach his own gospel, but to preach the gospel of God, which starts in Genesis 1. It's beautiful. And so that's what Jesus is ushering in. A third theme is Jesus, the authoritative Christ and Son of God. Jesus' authority in his teaching, which we've really talked about, and in his healing confirms that he is indeed the mighty Messiah. And the climax of this comes with the centurion in Mark chapter 15. Turn there to Mark 15, verse 39. At the very end, after Jesus breathes his last when the centurion who was standing right in front of him, would you want that front row seat or would you not want that front row seat? What a trick question, right? When the centurion who was standing right in front of our Lord Jesus Christ saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So that's another theme, is that Jesus is the authoritative Christ and indeed the Son of God, our Messiah. A fourth theme is Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Jesus is the servant of our Lord. Although Jesus is clearly the mighty Messiah and Son of God, His role in His first coming, which was here that we're talking, His role in His first coming is not to conquer but to suffer. His role was not to conquer but to suffer and to die as the righteous servant of the Lord. Look at Mark 10, 33 and 34. Mark 10, 33 and 34. And Jesus says this about himself. He says, we're going to go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock him, spit on him, scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Jesus, the servant of the Lord. Wow. But our fifth, and which is where I really want to draw our attention to, a fifth theme of Mark's gospel is a call to discipleship. We are called. That's our calling, is to cross-bearing discipleship. And that's not a real popular message, to be honest with you. It's not fun to talk about that. But it's reality. And if we try to skirt reality, we're in trouble. We are called to cross-bearing discipleship. That's what we're called to. Jesus models that for us perfectly. I'm going to say this twice. True disciples of Jesus are not to seek honor and power, but to take up their cross and follow him through sacrifice and suffering. True disciples of Jesus Christ are not to seek honor and power, but to take up their cross and follow him through sacrifice and suffering. Wow. In 64 AD, Nero began a massive persecution of Christians, and Mark wrote his gospel precisely during that time. And so his gospel, not only was it about Jesus Christ, but it also helped serve to guide and support uh, his fellow Christians in this time of crisis. It would be an encouraging word to them. The way of the cross for discipleship was modeled after our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Look at Mark 10, 41 through 45. Mark 10, 41 through 45. 
Hearing this, the ten began to feel angry with James and John. And so Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not that way among you, church. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Why? Even I, even the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So let's discuss some particulars. Those are very important themes. That last one, the cost of discipleship, is what we're really going to hone in on as we progress this morning. Let me give you some particulars about this this, uh, of, of Mark chapter 13. It's given a variety of names. Is that on the screen? Yeah. The Olivet Discourse is what we, we tend to refer to it, if you've heard of that, the Olivet Discourse, because he's given it from the Mount of Olives, this sermon or this discourse, if you will. It's also called the Eschatological Discourse. Eschatology is the study of end times, or the end of the world, if you will. It's also referred to as the Prophetic Discord, because obviously it has some prophecy in there. Or I really like this one. It's also referred to as the Little Apocalypse um, because of its similarity to the book of Revelation, which is also called the Apocalypse. The discourse of Mark 13 combines two literary forms. Um, the first is apocalyptic, which we've already discussed, and the second is testamental. It's on some level like a last will and testament because Jesus is about to take the cross. And so he's saying some things that are important to him for his uh, disciples to hear. The clearest biblical examples of apocalyptic literature are what? In the Old Testament, the book of Daniel and the book of what in the New Testament? Revelation. Yeah, those are your two biggest apocalyptic um, uh, literary forms in, in Scripture. In fact, uh, Daniel is actually alluded to numerous times in Mark chapter 13. The word apocalyptic means what? Does anybody know? Revealed, which is how we get revelation. That's what apocalyptic means. It means revealed. In apocalyptic literature, uh, the future usually is revealed in visions or by means of grandiose or even grotesque symbols. But those things are actually lacking in Mark 13, so it's not a typical apocalypse um, material. Another distinction of Mark 13, which is where we're going to draw our attention, um, another distinction uh, from other apocalyptic literature is the presence of a large amount of exhortation and ethical material, and that's where we're going to focus our time. Therefore, it has more immediate and practical value. The major concerns in Mark's account of Jesus' last words in this discourse of Mark 13 was to watch for his return and not to be deceived by disturbing events or disturbing people. Watch for his return and don't be deceived by things or persons in the meantime. The good news is God's coming back. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. We don't know when, but we know that. Right? That he's coming back. And we take courage in that, I hope and I pray. Not even the coming destruction of Jerusalem and its temple was to shock his disciples. The temple was no longer to be the focus of Christian hope. And that's when he opens up saying, I'm going to tear this thing down. In A.D. 70, Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled when the Romans completely wiped out the temple and the whole city of Jerusalem as they squelched 
the Jewish rebellion that had begun about four years prior to that. But that's not a problem, is it? The temple's gone. But that's not a problem for our Lord. Look what Acts 17.24 says. Acts 17.24 says that the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Our God doesn't need a building. He doesn't need this place for His purposes to advance. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6.18. This is how the Lord gets His stuff done. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Do you remember what... We're in Mark 13. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus went into the temple. Remember that? We discussed that. How were things going in the temple at the time He went in in Mark chapter 11? Were they good or were they bad? Not so good. And what did He do? He cleaned it out, man. Right? So consider that when we, when we read this. Verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That's where our Lord dwells, within us, not in a building. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. What price is that? The price of our Savior on a cross, paid with His own life. Church, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your temple, in your body. When I think of Mark chapter 11, when Jesus came to the temple, a temple that was supposed to represent His presence, the purity of His presence. And our lives are, are the temple where God dwells. If God were to come visit your temple... What, what, what would that look like? Would he overturn some things? Would he chase out some ugly stuff like he did in Mark chapter 11? What does your temple look like? So easy to pollute our temple so quickly with some unhealthy stuff. The location of Mark chapter 13, the location of this, uh, this text in his gospel is significant. It comes right before the Passion account. It comes right before Jesus is going to die and be resurrected. And so it implies, the implication is that in order to understand who He really is, the disciples must look beyond His death to His glorious return. Because that's the true Messiah that would come, die, rise again, but that He would come a second time. Mark seems to have made Jesus' return the more important ground for our confidence. The disciples were to look beyond their present suffering and look to their ultimate salvation, their ultimate reunion with Jesus Christ. Suffering, if disciples are to follow their Lord, suffering is the way to glory. Because it was the way to His glory. Why would it be any different for us? Suffering is the way to glory if we are truly to follow our Lord. That's not a popular message. It's not even a fun one to preach. But it's reality. Appearances, as we know, are often deceiving. But God is still in control of history and truth and righteousness will ultimately triumph. Can I get an amen? Assurance of the return and vindication of their Lord was very important to Mark's readers as they faced the prospect of persecution at the hands of Nero. One commentary says this about Mark 13. Listen to this. I think it's fantastic. A word of clarification is necessary 
about the purpose of this discourse. Certainly, the primary purpose was to provide assurance about Jesus' return and by implication, the true identity of Jesus. But the repeated warnings against being deceived suggest that Mark was also concerned to diminish uncontrolled enthusiasm and speculation about the future. The purpose of the discourse was not to give details about the future, but to provide assurance of Christ's return and thereby promote faithfulness in the present. Make sense? In its application to the church today, the discourse warns against a fanaticism and even a skepticism. It warns against both a preoccupation with the future or a preoccupation with the present only. The discourse encourages balance and perspective. Beware. Beware. Some things are going to happen. But live today. Live well today. Be prepared. Take heed. Take warning today. The disciples' question to Jesus dealt with the temple. Hey, we love the temple. What do you mean it's going to come down? His answer applied first to the near destruction of that temple uh, about 35 years later in 70 AD, but it applied second. His answer had a second application to the end of the world and to his own return. This double reference, if you will, also seems to look ahead to another abomination that causes desolation and to another period which we call the great distress or the great tribulation at the end of the age, long after the temple comes down. And it seems to clearly point to the Antichrist who will somehow position himself where he should not, which is in a place of our Lord. Okay? So that's the macro look. What are some principles that we can take away from this? As mentioned, we must not fail to see and take away the practical application of this discourse, which we're going to break down here in a second. While studying Mark 13 can help us better understand future events, we must not make the mistake of setting dates or trying to give clarity where Scripture is not clear. I don't know if I said this already, if I did, forgive me, but um, we have the luxury of having both testaments. We have the old and we have the new. When the Old was written, and if you were reading some of the old prophecies, or prophecies from the Old Testament, you probably just would scratch your head. Like, what the heck does that mean, right? Right? So it's not, maybe not real clear, but then when it gets fulfilled, it's like, oh, I get what that means now. It's more clear now because it wasn't clear then, but it's clear now. Right? And so sometimes we're trying to seek clarity out of some things in the Scripture where it's just not clear until it becomes clear. Is that clear? Right? Jesus isn't trying to give them clarity where they don't need clarity. They'll figure that stuff out. But he is going to be real clear about the things he wants to be clear about. Jesus did not preach the sermon in Mark 13 to satisfy the curiosity of his disciples or even to straighten out any confused thinking that they had. What he's making clear is that his disciples, you and I, are always in danger of being deceived. That's what he's making clear. That's the takeaway. We're always in danger of being deceived. I'm telling you, if Satan could not find you, you will have no problem deceiving yourself. We're just that silly in how we think. Yeah, Satan's after you too, but we're just so convoluted in our own way of thinking. We can so easily deceive ourselves and rationalize bad behavior. The pages of history are filled with tragic stories of false messiahs, false prophets, and their enthusiastic but deluded followers, or disciples, if you will. And Jesus warned about false prophets, for sure. 
Paul also warned about false prophets. John warned about false teachers and false prophets. There's something in human nature that loves a lie and refuses to believe the costly lessons that others have made in the past. Mark Twain says this. I love it. Mark Twain says, see if you can figure this out. It took me, it took me a minute. Mark Twain says, A lie runs around the world while truth is putting on her boots. A lie is running around the world while truth is putting on her boots. I didn't get it at first. It took me a while. And then I thought I got it. Then I had to actually Google it and say, what is the meaning of the, you know, Mark Twain's quote? And that was pretty close. It doesn't take much to spread a lie. It just doesn't. But truth, there's something about strapping up our boots. It takes time. And so, you know, we got to strap on our boots a little bit. It's just a yeoman's effort. It's a blue-collar effort to just get in God's Word and to get on our knees and to strap up our boots. Lies, those are easy. Seeking God's truth, it's a deal. It's a deal. I think it's a great quote. Check this out. At least four times in Mark 13, Jesus uses the words to us, take heed, be warned, be careful, take heed is what I like. Like, pay attention. Check this out. Look at verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, see to it. That's the Greek word blepo, B-L-E-P-O. See to it is the Greek word blepo. Take heed. Take heed. Be warned. Look at verse 9. Be on your guard. Be on your guard is the Greek word blepo. Take heed. We're to take heed. Look at verse 23. It starts off with, but take heed. That's the Greek word blepo. Look at verse 33. It says, take heed. The Greek word blepo. We must take heed at all times. It can happen so fast when we let up and the Satan just pounces, or our flesh just pounces. We, we can't let up. We must be warned and take heed at all times, church. And look how he closes his discourse, even though Pastor Dave's going to cover verses 24 through 37. Look at the last four verses. There's another word. Look at verse 33, 34, 35, and 37. He says, keep on the alert. Right after take heed, keep on the alert. That's the Greek word Gregoreo. It's like Gregorio. Greg, the name Greg, and then Oreo. Gregoreo, right? So that's the Greek word Gregor, Gregoreo, I think is how you say it, right? Keep on the alert. Be watchful. Be warned and be watchful. Be warned and be watchful. Look at verse 34 at the very end. It says, stay on the alert. Same Greek word, Gregoreo. And then in verse 30, what did I say? 35. Therefore, be on the alert. And in verse 37, at the very end, it says, be on the alert. Now, we, we have to be careful as followers of Jesus Christ in the battle that we're in, to be on the alert, to take heed at all times. Turn to Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. Ephesians is to the right. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. And Ephesians 6 is where we find the, you know, the armor of God, and we don't have time to read all of it. But look at 18 through 20. What do we need to do to be on the alert, to be watchful, to take heed? Ephesians 6, verse 18 with all prayer and petition. 
Pray when? At all times, in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert. Gregoreo, same word. Be on the alert. That's how we stay alert, is that we have to be praying people. With all perseverance and petition for all the saints, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming I may speak boldly. Mm. Look at Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Same thing. Devote yourselves to prayer. Do you pray? Yes. Are you devoted to prayer? That's a different question. Too many years of my Christian life, I was not devoted to prayer. I feel like I'm just learning how to be devoted to prayer. I don't know how else to say it. I just I wish I could tell you I've been devoted to prayer for a long time. I haven't been. But I'm learning to devote myself to prayer, and I love it. It's changing my life. Devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert, Gregoreo. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Pray at the same time for us as well that God will open up a door for us to the world so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ which I have also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech be, be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And look at 1 Thessalonians. It should be just a page or two over to your right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 9-13. through 13. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In verse 13, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received his word, the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but look at this, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which does what? One of my favorite verses. It performs its work in those who believe. God performs His work in those who believe when they spend time in His Word. And so the way that we uh, take heed, the way that we are watchful is we get to our knees and we're watchful and we're alert in our prayer and we spend time in His Word so that God can do the work that He wants to do in our lives. The Word of God which performs its work in you who believe. Oh, I love this thing. This is what's going to help me be ready. It's going to help me take heed. It's going to help me to be watchful. And so lastly, consider also that which we often would rather ignore. Let's read verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 back in Mark chapter 13. 9, 10, 11, and 12. And Jesus says, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, and you will give a testimony to them. The gospel must be preached to all the nations. 
when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you're going to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. There's something, I don't know how to explain it, there's just something about when persecution rises, proclamation also rises. When persecution rises, proclamation of the gospel rises. When persecution is reduced, the proclamation of the gospel is reduced. I don't know why that is. It's just the way it is. In verses 9, let's start off with verse 9. There's another word. It's parodidomy. Parodidomy. Look in verse 9. Be on your guard for they will deliver you. That's parodidomy. Deliver you. Greek word paradidomy. Look in verse 11. When they arrest you and hand you over, paradidomy. Deliver you in verse 9, hand you over in verse 11. Same Greek word. And then in chapter, in verse 12, it's the third word. Brother will paradidomy, betray. Hand over, deliver you, betray. Same Greek word in all three contexts. What's the significance of that? In the next two chapters, Mark 14 and 15, it's going to be used ten times. The same word, paradidomy, is going to be used ten times with reference to Jesus' betrayal by Judas and his deliverance to Pilate. That same word, delivered, handed over, and betrayed. And so its usage here in chapter 13 suggests that there's a correspondence between the fate of us and the fate of our Lord. Do you get that? Mark's connecting the two. If he's delivered and handed over and betrayed, and he's warning us the same thing. He's connecting it. But that's, on some level, the fate that we have. He's making that connection. Mark turns the subject of persecution, or turns to the subject of persecution, which leads to proclamation, because in the center of that, he says, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Right there in verse 10 amazing. Mark's readers or his hearers or disciples of our Lord would need to know how to conduct themselves moving forward. And so they were to continue to give testimony despite persecution. They were to depend on the Holy Spirit to help them know what to say and they were to stand firm to the end as verse 13 says. Let me read. Let's turn to 1 Peter. We're going to close with this text. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verses 12 through 19. First Peter 4, starting in verse 12. It's toward the end of the New Testament, before first and second, third John, before Revelation. First Peter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, those of you, us, church, loved by God, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree, listen to this, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if you're going to suffer, or if you suffer as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Oh, for it is 
For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That's a tough word for today, yeah? Here's the thing. Things are changing, aren't they? It's an interesting election. I don't know about you, but, you know, it's being said that we are in a post-Christian culture. Things could change really rapidly for what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We have to take heed. We have to watch. We have to be prepared. We have to be alert and be on our knees and be in God's Word. It's a tall order to be the church. Thank you for listening. I'm going to pray. Our, our worship team is going to lead us in a song. And then if you need prayer after our service, our prayer team is available in the corner. God, thank you so much for, for your Word. Thank you for the grace you extend to allow us to hear it. Lord, we need your strength to perform it as well. We can't do it on our own, Lord. We need you desperately. Lord, may we be people that fall to our knees and may we be people that straps straps on our boots, Lord, and wrestles for truth every day. We lift this up to you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.